Hello everyone and welcome to Love Dust, a podcast on love, dating, and relationships in the modern world. I'm your host, Marvin, and the theme music, courtesy of Matt Norton, is a Love Dust rag, a real jaunty tune. This is a special episode of Love Dust. The episode on ghosting is still on the works, so if you have thoughts to share on the subject, don't worry, there's still time. Keep them coming. You can reach us at a handful of lovedust at gmail.com. That's all one word, or you can call our toll-free number at 323-546-8652. Operators are standing by. Alright, I'm messing. It's not it's not a toll-free number, and there are no operators standing by. But I still want you to reach out. Anyway, the episode will be out in October, inaugurating what will likely be a monthly schedule. Get pumped! I've already heard from some really fantastic people, so I'm certainly pumped and more committed than ever to pushing the conversation forward. I also really appreciate the love I've been feeling from people. It means a lot to me, truly. So thank you. Today, however, for entirely selfish reasons, to work out why my Friday was as terrible as it was. And Fridays, for me, are always amazing. I need to talk about our deep desire for narrative, and our even deeper hunger for narrative closure. As Joan Didion famously observed in her eponymous essay from her 1979 collection, The White Album, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. I have long felt this to be true. When I first read the essay, several years ago now, I thought, Hadn't the Victorians figured this all out long ago? I was surprised that it had taken someone so long to brilliantly articulate an idea that feels like a quotation from at least the 19th century, something out of Ruskin, Carlyle, Macaulay. Isn't what Didion grasped the most basic condition of human existence, or at least of human culture? I wondered to myself. I recently read a piece from Aeon circulated on Arts and Letters Daily, an aggregator of think pieces and book reviews on the internet that seemed to think otherwise. The British analytic philosopher Galen Strauss challenged this position that has now apparently become a mainstay of American thought. The late Oliver Sacks, the famed British neurologist, the cognitive psychologist Jerome Brunner, and the philosophers J. David Velleman and Daniel Dennett, among others, have signed on to this view that we story ourselves and we are our stories, and moreover, that such self-narration is a good thing at least in Strausen's account. While Strausen himself insists, I am not a story. Now, I expected to see Didion mentioned for at least expressing and circulating this view in such an evocative way, especially since the phrase, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, carried enough currency with readers to warrant being reused as a title for a later collection of her essays. But I suppose I should not have been. Maybe the constraints of the argument did not permit or require her inclusion, Maybe dreary sexism is the culprit, maybe some prejudice against her as a writer rather than a thinker. A false distinction, of course, but one that carries a lot of weight. And a writer with a relatively wide audience, no less. Though Dennett is rather popular for all that. Maybe some amalgam of these biases. Maybe he mentions her in the unedited version that appears in the forthcoming anthology On Life Writing, from which the piece has been excerpted. In any such book, I can't imagine she wouldn't be mentioned by someone, at least in passing, for her incisive formulation of a genre, or perhaps mode is a better term, with a long history in which women and women's lives have played an outsized role. But the more I thought about the question, whatever the merit of these other motives I entertained ascribing to the writer, part of the reason Didion might have been omitted is that she didn't wholly endorse his consensus view herself. 
She may have thought we used narrative to order experience, but she didn't necessarily think that think that, that choice, or perhaps impulse, was a particularly wise or benign one. Consider what I left out of the quote. The intervening series of snapshots she flips through in her fractured and elliptical survey of 1960s and 70s America. The princess is caged in the consulate. The man with the candy will lead the children into the sea. The naked woman on the ledge outside the window on the 16th floor is a victim of axity. Or the naked woman is an exhibitionist, and it would be interesting to know which. We tell ourselves that it makes some difference whether the naked woman is about to commit a mortal sin or is about to register a political protest or is about to be the Aristophanic view snatched back to the human condition by the fireman in priest's clothing just visible in the window behind her, the one smiling at the telephoto lens. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see. We select the most workable choices. Two nights ago, sharing Didion's palpable hesitation about looking for lessons, but nonetheless in dire need of one, I sought one such sermon in the suicide. Now to calm your fears, gentle reader, I'm not, nor have ever been, nor do anticipate ever being suicidal. I'm too satisfied with my life and with who I am, too enthralled to the shearing beauty of the world in which we inhabit together. I'm too devoted to my family. My life belongs to them far too working class, and too aware that my problems are not really, by any reasonable reckoning, problems at all. There are people in this world, after all, and a great many of them, who never live on this earth without knowing anything except pain. Nor have I ever been, nor will ever be, religious. I have my mother to thank for that, as for so many other things in my life, and a father who, whatever his pretensions to Christian piety, has never believed with sufficient strength or commitment to have raised either myself or my sister in any religious way. But after a ghastly Friday night, a Friday with its own shifting phantasmagoria that even Odysseus, or Aeneas for that matter, would find hard-pressed to converse with in a way that would answer any purpose, I stood before a kind of self-authored death. Not a real suicide, people. Ransacking the smoked remains for a story, an apothegm, even an image, to explain that death's significance to myself. Stick with me, people. I'm going to get somewhere. Dressed almost entirely in green, a green woman's blazer from Land's End I bought with an ex at a thrift store in Richmond, Virginia, a striped green and blue skinny tie I found in the bargain bin of the H&M at Union Station in Washington, D.C., green slacks from a Primark in Yorkshire, visited during a trip to the U.K. I made this summer, and a green fedora from a gap likely somewhere in Pennsylvania, and surrounded with a kind of gallows humor on the universe's part by a sea of green from hordes of visiting football fans. I already felt disoriented enough on this sanctified day of mine to find myself ill-prepared for the series of snapshots that would confront Whelm and send me into disarray on what had become, to quote Edna St. Mitzamalay, a blinding hour, a holy, terrible day. There was the woman in a red dress who I idly flirted with while we were both waiting in line for the bathroom, a woman who I remembered contacting on OK Cupid, but who of course did not remember me, much less my interest in her. In the same line, there was a mother cradling a tired child of perhaps an age too old to be comfortably cradled, who I let jump ahead of me, and the man behind me whose compliment for insisting that she go first I waved off without turning around. There was my lovely friend Ben I met at a conference a couple of years ago and his partner in town for a birthday dinner in Ben's honor, the two wonderfully wry and energetic men clearly devoted to one another. 
There was a former student who I saw from a distance and who I unwisely called out to before I could catch myself, but who thankfully didn't hear me, since my voice had been breaking. There was my favorite bartender who treated me to a glass of kava since I hadn't been by in a while. There was the hostess I actually asked out, strolling hand in hand with her boyfriend of several months. There was the other hostess at my regular place who complimented me on my shoes and who I complimented on her necklace and our by now pointless but familiar dance. There was my friend Lauren who asked that I rescue her from an aggressive male suitor who I had encountered once before and found very, very strange. The same Lauren who was feeling pretty adrift herself that evening. There were the regulars at the wine shop I visit each week for its free tasting, one of whom I exchanged a nod with, the other a halting conversation I didn't particularly want to have and feel I didn't carry off very well. And finally, there was the woman with the bizarrely performative manner I know vaguely through a friend who half recognized me at a bar and with a surprising kindness introduced me to her law school friends, including one who shares a love for the work of Wallace Stevens, my favorite poet, and another one named Annie, who I almost asked to go on a date with me, but finally, on the 11th hour, did not. Like Theseus in the labyrinth, I tried to find the thread in these disparate images which reflected my loneliness, my fear of always being lonely, of being overlooked and disregarded, of remaining the immaculately dressed man with the winning smile and the kind word and the ready joke, but nothing more. And the fear of dying alone. I tried to think it out, as John Rokesmith tried to think out his greatest difficulty in Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens, a character and author of self-storing if ever there were one, and by extension, to think myself out out of that loneliness, out of the story that had produced it, out of the pain that has persisted in the resignation to its permanence. But all I could say was that I was lonely and it wasn't fair and I didn't like it. I didn't like that I didn't count, that I didn't matter, that in the economy of desire I had no value, that everything I did on behalf of my heart had been for nothing and for no one. That I was spending time with a woman I once dated rather than the love of my life and amongst women who I might have dated instead of the one who would have impaled herself on her passion for me, instead of the other way around. What must that feel like, to feel that someone is fighting for you, to be the pursued rather than the pursuer? I would like to know, just once, what it would mean to be plucked from the cinders instead of forced to make one's own magic. Wynton Marsalis, in a discussion of jazz and race, said that Cinderella is the one with the moral authority. But sometimes one doesn't want to be right. One wants to win and to enjoy the pleasures of that victory. To have someone tap me on my shoulder, as I imagine Charlotte Lucas might have done in another version of our lives in this town, and say breathlessly, I'm sorry I took so long. I got caught in traffic. You wouldn't believe the accident on the 305. To have a champion rescue one from the tower, free one from the poisoned slumber, to say the words or shoot the arrows or slay the suitors or raise the turrets or storm the ramparts in order to signify, I have chosen you. I met someone like that once, or at least the closest I'll ever get, the love of my life, the one that got away, or at least the one whose getting away mattered the most, 10 years ago, in fact. And I thank whatever gods may be, to quote William Ernest Henley's chestnut of a poem, for her unconquerable soul. She was the making of me, that woman, of everything I have ever done and have ever been since. But that is another story for another time. And one that couldn't and didn't last. It didn't last because I was too late to convince her that she should love me. 
Somebody fantastic arrived there first, just as someone had for Charlotte Lucas, her inheritor. And it couldn't last, because for perhaps the first time I was no longer willing, in the words of Leslie Feist, to lose my mind for the sake of my heart. I let the law student go. I let the dream die another small and particularly meaningful death, a dream in many ways her voice had kept alive in me. It's true, you know, what else Feist sang in that song. The saddest part of a broken heart isn't the ending so much as the start. I thought about making the move, of course, almost involuntarily, with the muscle memory appropriate to any veteran romantic, the same kind that made me put my number in Charlotte's purse or ask for the hostesses a few weeks back. In preparation for the anticipated ask, I even implied she was dating one of her fellow law students. When she made it clear that she was not, I, I still let it go. I did not balk out of fear. That has happened really only one time I can remember. I did not see a reason in the specific context of the encounter to beg off. If there was no distinct encouragement, there was no discouragement either. I simply no longer believed what I felt mattered, what I said, what I did, what I might offer this person with her winning sincerity, with her earnestness she did not see in herself. I do not think my feelings matter anymore. They barely even matter to me. They are a memory, not a lie. To paraphrase a line Stevens once wrote in some poem I can no longer recall. It's one of the long ones, I believe, maybe notes or, or maybe um, uh, blue guitar. I know how this story ends and ends how it began with nothing. So whatever part of me wanted to throw the dice, a greater part of me knew there were no more dice left to throw, no more moves to make. I was all out of pitches, my arm gone out. Joseph Conrad said we live as we die alone, and for some of us that fundamental human condition is truer than it is for others, and the effect devastates. And Richard Dawkins said that the universe doesn't owe us condolence or consolation, that if something's the truth, we have to learn to live with it. So this, I guess, represents me learning to live with it. This is me finding my way out of the dark wood. This is me calling out across ages and ages hence, as Frost said, or across the tired years as Dylan Thomas did, with this frail and broken voice and with this overstrained and wasted heart. To say a version of what Larry David and the writers of Seinfeld said in the writer's room of that epoch-making television show. No hugging, no learning. The moral of the story is that there is no moral. I'm not saying I agree with Straws and finally, that storying doesn't exist or if it does that it is bad. I don't think I do. But I'm still thinking through his argument and I look forward to consulting the book from Oxford University Press when it is published. Nor am I even saying that storying is untrue and or destructive with respect to love in particular. On the contrary, if your love life hasn't worked out to your satisfaction, there is value in determining its arc to figure out what series of events, causes, motivations, and conditions have led you in the sumptuous phrase of Cole Porter to the silence of your lonely room. That way you can better understand yourself, which is, in a, which is a good in and of itself, self-knowledge, right? And if desired, to change your story. I am not advocating fatalism then, at least not for you, lonely hearts. I believe that each and every one of you can find the person who deserves you. I believe that you will. I believe, in spite of ostensibly overwhelming evidence to the contrary, that love works more often than it doesn't, that people find one another if they are brave enough to look. What did Izzy Steven say in her famous speech from Grey's Anatomy? I think like from the second season or something. Ah yes, I remember. I believe that believing we survive is what makes us survive. Because I think the world is intelligible, and I think the story can be changed. 
I think I understand my own story, or at least most of it, and I have in a fashion flipped the script, as a cliché holds, for which I am so thankful. But what I guess I am saying is that Didion is right to suggest we should be wary of any tendency we have in that direction. Even assuming we can get the story right, or that we should, some stories are more stubborn than others. Understanding your fate is not the same as altering its course. Even altering it might mean you can't alter it enough, as was the case for me. Or to alter it would mean giving up too much of who you are, a Faustian bargain that is never worth it, and almost never works even on its own narrow terms. It is certainly possible to find a way out of your lonely room, don't get me wrong. But that doesn't mean you necessarily will. Some people fail, and there is no sense in pretending that you might not be one of them. For all the change I have been able to effect for myself, I haven't really changed much of anything at all, not ultimately. And I'm not confident that the reasons my friends have invoked for why I should still have hope would make much difference in the end. A new location, a new attitude, patience, a more settled professional life, so on and so forth. Maybe they could. Maybe they even will. But it's just as likely that they won't. Perhaps even more likely. The uncomfortable truth is that there are deserving people who face defeat every day, through no fault of their own and people who are complete wastes of time and space and energy, who luck out, who stumble into things, and people they haven't particularly earned. You cannot give a shit. You can be a dick. And still find someone who fulfills your emotional needs, even if you don't fulfill theirs. Or you can become better through finding a person who is better than you. The idea essentially borrowed from the sitcom How I Met Your Mother, that relationships have a settler and a reacher. These things can happen, they do happen, and the sooner we realize that in love, even more than in the whole of human existence, with its own unfairness, of course, that our designs for explanations, solutions, and frameworks of order can only go so far in illuminating love's course, much less in giving us the tools to change it, the sooner we can forgive ourselves for a failure that is not entirely, or perhaps even primarily, ours. Which is what I guess I'm trying to do, at least in part, with this podcast to forgive myself if the power of words as my friend has elegantly suggested is the hardest lesson to unlearn and I think it is at least or especially for writers so is the power of the stories they inform thanks for listening everyone and I'll talk to you soon love from Love Dust.